Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROCK is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and you are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. We hope that you all are enjoying this, and please just wait. We are working on a compilation of all of the notes for all of the podcasts, including the ones that have not come out yet, to give to you all since this has been requested by a good amount of you all, and uh, and without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Yeah. And, uh, and then we, we briefly talked a little bit about notching the femur, but why is it important to not notch the femur? Or I guess, what is notching and then what's the important aspects to avoid yeah and just to quickly talk to us based on one of the things that you were just mentioning was that i know i think our my attendings do the same thing use a pulsatile lavage and some of my attendings you know on that really hard sclerotic bone on like a various knee they use a drill and make just more you know short drill holes uh in the uh you know in the proximal tibia you know in the metaphyseal region just to, in order to get some of some more of that cement penetration and yeah, I think most of mine do where they put a little bit of cement on the tibia as well as on the implant and impact that in. Uh, but yeah, so to answer your question, uh, why is it important not to notch on the femur and what notching is? So like when you're making your femoral cuts and you're making the cut that's going, you know, towards it, towards the shaft, if you make that too, let's see, if you look in the sagittal plane, if you make it too posteriorly, you can actually have like leave a notch on the femur where the bone is. So like the bone, instead of being smooth, it'll almost have like a little step off where there's a piece of bone uh, and you're almost like you're cutting part of that cortical bone, you know, so you're cutting into the cortical bone. Ideally, when you make that cut, you want it to be nice and smooth and in line with the anterior cortex of the femur. You don't want to cut out some of the cortical bone of the, of the anterior cortex of the femur. And so it's important not to notch the femur because this lessens the load to failure. This can actually lead to fracture when you notch the femur. So um, that's something that you will see intraoperatively. Sometimes you can see it visually. You can also feel it. And then postoperatively, if you look on a lateral x-ray uh, of the knee, you know, if it's, if it's notched, you can see it um, on the, on the x-rays. Um, now, what are some, I guess, technical errors when performing total knee arthroplasty that can lead to patellar maltracking? You know, we mentioned patellar instability in our sports talk, you know, with our patella dislocating laterally. Uh, and the same thing can happen with total knee arthroplasty. So what are some technical things that can lead to patellar maltracking? Yeah, this is uh, outside of flexion and extension gaps. This is the uh, topic that the OITE loves to uh, test on. And basically what you 
have to look for or what you're trying to achieve is the patella tracking well within the trochlear groove of the femur. And essentially what they may show you is um, a sunrise view of the knee and they'll show either a patella that is um, kind of hinging up towards the lateral side or is just frankly dislocated from the femoral component and the trochlea itself. And it'll ask, um, what was the error or how do you prevent this error or what's the next steps uh, on, on what you should be doing for this patient. And basically what they, what they're looking for is you want to avoid internal rotation of the femoral and tibial components. And why you want to avoid internal rotation of these is uh, what it, what internal rotation of the components does is it actually turns your uh, native femur and tibia uh, externally. And when you turn your femur or tibia or both externally, your pull of the, uh, ga uh, the gastroc, the quadriceps tendon and the patella falls laterally and it will cause a lateral dislocation of the patella. So you want to externally rotate your femoral component about three degrees from the transepicondylar axis five degrees if you are concerned that it's still going to mount track. And then same thing with the tibia is you don't really do the tibia component straightforward. You do it kind of based on that uh, kind of second to fourth metatarsal down the leg. So even your tibial component is slightly externally rotated and that will bring a relative internal rotation to the tibia and femur and had caused the patella to track more medial and better within the trochlear groove of the femoral component. Um, lastly, when you're, if you are doing a patellar resurfacing with a total knee, you want to place your patellar poly uh, uh, as medial as possible. And what this will help do is uh, if that component is as medial as possible, it will allow for a little bit of lateral translation of the patella, but still allow the poly to track where it's supposed to. So uh, it, it's kind of your last ditch resort for keeping the patella tracking well within the trochlear groove. So internal rotation is bad, external rotation is good, and a medial patellar component is better than a lateral patellar component when it comes to patellar maltracking. And so uh, let's say you've done everything according to plan. You have three degrees of external rotation, you have a little bit of external rotation in your tibial component, and you put your patellar component as medial as possible. What's kind of the uh, last thing that people will do to kind of help the patella track well within the trochlear groove. Yeah. And one of the things you can do to test this, <laughs> I remember when I was an intern in second year, my attending used to be like, no thumbs, you know, like when they're, uh, when you have the patellar component and everything uh, reduced in your, in your testing the tracking, I just thought it was just a no thumbs thing. Like just no, I just thought it was a two lane thing. And then I read in the book, it was like a no thumb, no thumb technique, meaning you're not putting your thumb on the patella to make it track. Instead, you're, you know, you're arranging the knee and seeing how the patella tracks 
without your fingers there. So you don't put your fingers there. You're trying to cheat and put the patella in the middle where it's supposed to track. You want to see how it does naturally. But that's not the question you asked. Uh, the question you asked is, you know, another technique that can be done um, when you see some patella maltracking is a lateral retinacular release. And uh, what this is, is, you know, the, the everybody does, I guess, technique wise a little bit differently. But, you know, at least how I've seen it done is you kind of go with the bovie right right around the lateral retinaculum and you just go with the bovie and you and you bovie down and you release that uh, retinacular tissue. which is supposed to help get your patella a little bit more medial. Uh, one of the things to note about this is that you, can, you may injure the superior lateral genicular artery. Uh, which could possibly lead to osteonecrosis of the patella, which it does happen because you got to think about it. You're, we're destroying a lot of the, the medial blood supply to the patella with the medial parapatellar arthrotomy. And so when you're doing a lateral retinacular release, the artery, the superior lateral genicular artery is still, before you do the release, it's still intact and giving some blood supply to the patella. So uh, if you do a lateral retinacular release, you could injure that artery. And another thing you can do, is if you do that and it's still not really tracking how it needs to, you can also do a lateral arthrotomy, uh, which I've seen done as well. And which this can lead to pulling of blood into subcutaneous tissues and wound issues post-op. So that's something to note as well. Um, so, you know, look for lateral arthrotomy and, and close superficially so that the synovial place is in a, is in a, uh, is a closed environment. You want everything to be closed. Uh, and you try to, you know, try to decrease the amount of blood or hematoma formation, as we know, that could actually lead to wound issues as well as infections. Um, so to sum it up, lateral retinacular release as well as a lateral arthrotomy. Those yeah, are things one thing, I, I, when you were talking about like that no thumb thing, because yeah. yeah, you can, like you said, you can force a patella to <laughs> like if you really wanted to you can push the patella over and track on the medial condyle of the femur right. um one thing that i will do is uh i'll take a penetrating towel clamp and i will close the superomedial portion of my arthrotomy um similar to how it's going to be closed with sutures uh, because then that gives me a, a good idea of when everything is closed and the medial tissues are also kind of helping the patella more medial, uh, how that tracks as well. So obviously if the patella is able to track well without anything, then you know that it's going to, to track well regardless. But if, if you do the, if you kind of clamp your arthrotomy, um, while you're trialing, it will give you at least a sense of what the knee will track like when it's closed and uh, maybe prevent you from having to do a renacular release if the medial tissues help the patella stay medial. Yeah, good point. Very good point. Yeah, I've seen, um, we've done that as well. But yeah, that's a very good point because you'll see how it's going to look like. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROC. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROC covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to rock content is free to residents. 
Get started at rock.aaos.org. And um, and you know, total knee, great procedure. There are a lot of technical aspects that you need to, you know, understand in order to have a good outcome or you know do a good surgery. But we unfortunately do know complications are seen after total knee arthroplasty. So, what are just some you know, there's some general complications that you can see or that you can note after a total knee um, arthroplasty is done. Yeah. And these are all the things that you're really talking to patients about with um, kind of the pre-op stuff. So uh, knee instability, uh, stiffness, heterotopic ossification, um, infection, obviously is the big one that you want to avoid. Intraoperative fracture, uh, wound dehiscence, vascular injury, um, and then, uh, any sort of kind of implant, uh, malposition and need for, uh, revision based on everything else is fine, but you have implant malposition. So those are some of the complications that you can see after a total knee and have patients understand what they're getting themselves into. Cause despite this being a very popular and uh, massively performed surgery, there's also complications with it. So when you're talking to a patient um, about a peroneal nerve palsy um, after a total knee, what, what kind of patients are you really worried about with this complication? Yeah, you know, so one of the things that you're worried about is they've had, uh, well, patients that have valgus and contracted knees, you're worried about, you know, developing a perineal nerve palsy. And the reason why is because they've been in this position for so long that when you straighten their knee out, uh, you know, in the coronal plane, as well as in the sagittal plane, you're putting that nerve on a little bit of stretch. So these patients may work up in the post-op area with a per, uh, perineal nerve palsy. You may see them in the clinic and, you know, their top of their foot's numb. They may have a foot drop or, you know, some of these different things that happen when you have a perineal nerve palsy. And so say you're in the post-op area, you know, check on our patients in the PACU uh, or on the floor, you know, after your day of, of doing cases and you suspect that they have a perineal nerve palsy, like, you know, their top of their foot's numb and they're having a little bit of weakness, a little bit of foot drop. What's kind of that first step that you should do uh, when you suspect this, you know, after a total knee arthroplasty? Um, one, control what you can control. And what I mean by that is, you obviously are not able to personally wheel the patient back into the OR or open up their wound and redo their total knee in the PACU. So immediate things first, take off their compressive bandage and flex their knee. So put a few pillows underneath their knee and take off your ACE bandage. And what you're doing by that is you're kind of loosening the tension on the knee and the external compression on the peroneal nerve. And then if they didn't really have a bad knee to begin with, then you can consider like a, a post-op AFO because the peroneal nerve routinely will come back, but you have to let them know that it will take time. And so with their foot drop, you're going to want to uh, possibly treat them with an AFO so that they're able to rehab relatively normally rather than develop a steppage style gait while they're rehabbing a total knee. And uh, so let's say you have a patient, they come back for their six week post-op and 
their range of motion is zero to 75 degrees, which is, uh, for those of you out there, it's not ideal. What are some of the treatment options you can provide that patient at this time? Yeah, one of the things that you could do is a manipulation under anesthesia. You know, you take them to the operating room and you manipulate their knee and try to get them a little bit more range of motion, a little bit more flexion. And there are multiple techniques or multiple ways that I've seen people do this. Uh, but you can actually like hear some of the scar tissue when the knee is, you know, being flexed a little bit more. You can hear some of those adhesions being broken up. And just like you just mentioned, range of motion from zero to 75, isn't that great? I know you know, different attendings aim for different things, but I think at least six to eight weeks post-op, you want these patients to be at least 90 or 100 degrees range of motion as far as knee flexion. Um, and a manipulation under anesthesia can be performed at 12 weeks post-op, um, but, you know, later than that, that can actually lead to a fracture. You know, if you think about it and you're you're pressing down and, and trying to bend that knee, you could actually, <laughs> you could break the tibia, you can break the femur. There are a lot of things that can go wrong. You can, even with just simple manipulation under anesthesia, you know, eight weeks out, there are things that can go wrong and there are risks with every procedure that you definitely need to talk to the patients about. But, you know, I think it's pretty reasonable six to eight weeks or, you know, up to 12 weeks to do a manipulation under anesthesia. And, uh, and since we're talking about total knee arthroplasty complications, what's the most common type of metal hypersensitivity? That will be nickel. Um, and the OITE won't, or typically it's not going to say like, what is the most common metal hypersensitivity and label like steel, nickel, copper, titanium, and something like that, and have you choose nickel. But what they will do is um, a they'll lead you down a path of this patient has a nickel uh, allergy or hypersensitivity. What sort of allergy or what type of allergy reaction is this? And it's going to be a type four uh, T cell hypersensitivity reaction. And uh, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what one, two, and three are, but I know that they involve like, um, one is like a histamine release with mast cells. Another one is uh, uh, kind of an acute hypersensitivity, while this is a delayed type four T cell related hypersensitivity. That's what they're going to test you on. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what the type three off of the yeah, top I of can't, my head. <laughs> I can't like compliment I just, release? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, it's like compliment or something. And then there's, I think like type one is like the usual like hives um, mast cell and histamine activation. And so that's like the typical allergy reaction. And then there's others on top of that, but I, yeah, I can't remember, but just remember type four for nickel. Cause that's what they're going to test you on and, um, how you screen for that, uh, is you, a lot of patients are unable to wear standard jewelry. So they may say like, Oh, I've never been able to wear earrings or uh, mm. only leather watch bands work or um, my all of my belt buckles cause a rash right below my uh, belly button. Like those sort of questions are, are what nickel sensitivity is going to lead you towards. And if they have those things in order to avoid the potential either litigations or constant patient complaints about why their total knee isn't ideal. Um, you do 
uh, kind of a different material coated total knee, which to my knowledge right now, it's, uh, I think the company's Ascolap um, has a total knee that is gold in color, but not oh, gold man. plated. Uh, that is uh, for hypersensitivity patients, but that's, I'm sure there's more, but that's the only one off the top of my head that I know. So moving on, uh, what is important to check for in a patient that has a total knee, but also fell while walking their dog and they have a patella fracture? Yeah. So, you know, any, anybody that has this total knee or periprosthetic fracture, we're typically, you know, when we're specifically talking about the patella, you want to know if the implant is stable. You know, that's one thing that you want to know. Um, sometimes you can test this or sometimes you can see this on x-rays, but a lot of times it's intraop, or at least I know that's how it is with hips a lot of times. Uh, but number one, you want to know if the implant is stable. And number two, do they have an extensor lag? So when they extend their knee, um, you know, are they, are they able to fully extend it? You know, is there some type of a lag? And so if they have a significant lag, um, you know, kind of greater than 10 degrees or so, and the implant is unstable, then you revise the component if there's enough bone. And for this, uh, you know, from what I've read, it looks like it needs to be at least 13 millimeters of patellar bone. Again, so, you know, anybody that has this fracture, you need to, uh, and they have a significant lag and the component is unstable, you revise the component if there's enough bone. Uh, if the lag is greater than 10 degrees and the implant itself is stable, you don't need necessarily need to do anything to the component because it's stable, but they need some type of extensor mechanism repair. Um, Dr. Antonia Chen uh, gave a, a great talk on our podcast about extensor mechanism reconstructions around total knees. If you all want a deeper dive into that, she talks about, you know, reconstructions with mesh and uh, things of that sort. Um, but so that's, that's kind of what you want to, like, what you want to pay attention to for patients that have these, you know, periprosthetic patella fractures. Um, thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you all are enjoying this and learning something. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and please tell one colleague or friend about us and leave us a review in iTunes, Google Play, however you listen to us. Until next time.